finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that very day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul <clears throat> saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before him, before them. The word of the Lord. make it work better. Um, it's good to see you. Uh, for those of you that are new, I'm Pastor Jerry. I'm one of the assisting pastors here at the church and um, um, thankful that our pastor would give me the opportunity to speak to you this morning. But before I get started, let me just um, I'll, I'll lean into a short prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the word and the truth of your word, and don't let me get in the way of that today. I just pray that um, um, if you choose through me, you will speak to these people, you will touch their hearts, and um, that they will act upon what you have called them to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I. Um, was thinking uh, all for the last week or so we've all kind of been sorting out from the storm and I was telling the uh, our, our brothers and sisters in the first service that this has been a busy week for me because we have just launched into birthday month for my wife Lana she had a birthday yesterday and uh, it goes on for about a month and um, uh, it's really hard and wearing, and so I appreciate your prayers as, as I move forward in the weeks to come. Um, but um, I want to talk today about something that um, you may not have ever heard a sermon on. Um, and it's possible that even what I have to say 
might be a little uncomfortable. Uh, in the mountains where I grew up, uh, after a sermon like I'm getting ready to bring, the, uh, people would say, well, the pastor's meddling today a little bit. Um, but thankfully, you only have to deal with me about once every quarter, and so hopefully it won't be too bad. I watched a film um, uh, Friday night with my wife. It was, it, was the, 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 it was about the life and the ministry of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. And um, it was amazing, uh, some just golden nuggets that I got out of that film. But one thing that um, Fred Rogers said was, what is essential in life is invisible to the eye. What is essential in life is often invisible to the eye. Um, and so today, we're going to sort of take a deep dive um, into the scripture, looking at it some, somewhat from a heart perspective. Um, our hearts are the invisible center uh, of our emotional and spiritual life. It's, it's not our hearts, I'm not talking today about our physical hearts, I'm talking about our emotional hearts. It's, it, uh, the hearts I'm talking about today are, are, is, is the part of you that was broken when the girl or the guy in the eighth grade sent you a note in math class and said, you know what, I, I just want to be a friend. And, you know, you're crushed. It, it's the part of you that wells up with pride when, when your, your kids do really well in, in sports or academics or even in, in um, areas of service in their community. It's the part of me that swells up as Lana and I are riding down a country road in the summertime and the radio's on and the wind's blowing through uh, uh, the cab of the truck. And I just look over at her and I say, man, that is a wonderful woman. She told me to say that. <laughs> I asked her for some examples in my message. She said, that would be a good one. No, she didn't. I, that's on my own. <laughs> Our hearts are mysterious, wonderful places. Where, where we, we file and we store warm memories. Great old songs and I told the uh, first service, the sound, I, I will never forget as a child sleeping on a, t uh, a side porch of our farmhouse with the rain pouring down on an old tin roof on a summer afternoon. Those are the things that make life rich and, and we store those things in our heart. It's, it's a um, place where relationship begins. It's a place where love is encountered. And sometimes it's a place where brokenness destroys. Life can be hard on the heart. But as Mr. Rogers uh, astutely pointed out in this, this film we watched Friday night, he says, but that which is essential 
always remains. So the pain and disappointments can lead us to places in our lives where we never intended to be. And life's bumps and bruises can take their toll. Pastor Paul has been leading us through the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, and we're looking, we've been looking at the life of David. And if you remember initially the first week we looked at um, David's call, the, God's anointing on, on um, David's life. And then uh, last week we looked at the story of David and, and Goliath and and. And we, you know, we were kind of challenged to consider what have been the giants in our lives. What are the giants that we have faced? Well, today we continue in chapter 18, and uh, we're taking a look now. Uh, the, the focus uh, in this part of the, the scripture actually shifts a little bit. It shifts from David to Saul and Jonathan. Uh, I'm not going to read all the scripture that Jonathan uh, read this morning uh, for us, but I'm going to share beginning in verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. Now, that is, a, if, if you know anything about uh, sort of biblical history or that time in, in history, that was a typical practice of, a, of um, an army that has won the battle. They would come back through the town. They would even go out of their way to go through towns to come back uh, to display all the spoils and to have everyone celebrate the victory that they had had. So this was a normal thing. Uh, and verse 7 says, As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry, and this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? So, let me put this in perspective. They're returning. They're celebrating the king and his victory, and they are also celebrating Saul. But King Saul couldn't get past that. They, they had said, David kills ten times more than I did. And so anger takes over. And in verse 9, it goes on to say, uh, in the NIV that from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, another trend, uh, several other translations, and maybe more correctly, said Saul developed a jealous eye for David. And so that's what we're picking up on uh, today. Um, I think I shared the example in the first service um, some of you may have seen uh, uh, this film. It's, it's many years old now. But they take a toddler, and they set the toddler down in a room by him or herself, and they give them a new toy, and they're filming it. And, uh, you know, the toddler's enjoying the toy and playing with it until 
they bring a second toddler in with an identical toy. And I'm sure the young moms, and, or moms in general in this, they know, you know the rest of the story, what happens. One or, or both of them become displeased with the toys that they have, and they want the other toddler's toys. Um, C.S. Lewis, the English writer and um, one of my favorite authors, writes uh, uh, in his book in, in, uh, of Mere Christianity, and this is one of my favorite excerpts. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And once the element of competition is gone, the pride is gone. So I'm going to kind of lean in a little bit to the subject of envy. This may be the first time you've ever heard a message on envy. Uh, but I believe it is something that all of us struggle with. And very few of us see it as a, pro a problem. And almost no one sees it in themselves. I've been in pastoral ministry, teaching and counseling and so on for 20 some odd years now. And I'm always intrigued by the different stories that come my way uh, in, the, in, in the work that I do. And, and when I, I believe that I have, I've said, you know what, no one will ever top that story. Some will, someone will come to me with an even um, greater story, or more troubling story, or more problematic story. And, that, and then I say, well, no one will ever top that, and yet they do, they do it again. But you know what? In my 20 years of ministry, no one has ever come to me and said, Pastor, I, 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 need, to, uh, I need your help because I'm struggling with envy. You know what, Pastor? I, I think I've, I've got a pride problem in my life. No one has ever in all these years come to me wanting help with that. Envy or pride is the sin that no one talks about. So let's take a quick look. I want to look at three things. First of all, what is it? What does envy look like? Secondly, what does it do to us? What does it do to this tender heart that I was talking about before? And then lastly, how can we escape it? What is it? I had um, an English teacher in high school in, in my senior English class. And I went to an academic kind of school, and, and they handpicked the senior English teachers because they knew that was their last chance to really prepare you for college. Her name was Miss Rhodes. Miss Rhodes, by, by leaps and bounds, was my favorite teacher of all time. College or, or public school. Um, you would come into Miss Rhodes' class. And she would take the first three or five minutes of the class and she would ask you, she would make a statement or read something about a current event. 
And then she would say, now, I want you to write a one-page paper on what you think about that event or that situation. And then after everyone had written that paper, she would have two or three of you stand up and say, okay, I want you to, to state what you believe and defend what you believe. And I can, I, the, I, the reason I'm using this example because it is so clear to me. I, many, many times I would, I would state what I believe and, and then I would start explaining and she would say, Mr. McSwain, stop. Because you're getting ready to step out on a slippery slope. And um, that's what envy is. Envy is a slippery slope. You begin with a false assumption, which leads you to another false assumption, which leads you to, well, you get the point. Envy begins with comparison. Oh, look what so-and-so has, or look what so-and-so gets to do, or whatever. It, it, it bleeds, comparison bleeds over to desire. You want their lives, or you want what they have, and then lastly, it um, ends up in resentment. You begin to resent them. Comparison, if you look at verse 7, you can see this uh, because it says when they came back, the, the women were singing that Saul had killed his thousands and David had killed his tens of thousands. And, and so the scripture goes on to talk, and Saul says, well, why is that? Why are they, why are they singing the praises of David? Um, uh, and the other interesting thing about this sort of juncture in the scripture is, Saul was still king at this time. I mean, he had a pretty good deal going on. And uh, he starts comparison, comparing. We do that too in our lives. Um, we um, say, look at their house. Or look at their cars. Or look at their kids. Look how well their kids do. Man, if I only had so-and-so's job. Or probably even more. Man, if they would only compensate me the way they compensate so-and-so. He's not as smart as I am, or she's not as smart as I am. And it goes and on. The, the tricky thing is comparison always leads you to desire. It says in verse 9, and from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And, and, and the, as I said before, the, the, the literal translation, that would be a jealous eye on David. He resented what David had and he wanted David's praises, even though they were praising him in the same moment. Wishing you had will make it impossible to enjoy what you have. Wishing you had will make it impossible to enjoy what you have. And then desire will bleed over to resentment. The best definition that I could come across for resentment is resentment is weeping when others are rejoicing, 
and rejoicing when others are weeping. There's a part of us that always likes the, the movie or the story or the news where somebody falls. Um, but here's what envy will do to you. It will rob you. It will rob you of joy. It will rob you of happiness. It will destroy your relationships. And it will also grow. If left unchecked, it will well up inside of you and make you an angry person. Tim Keller says, here's how God judges sin. God gives you more of what you've chosen. There is no greater punishment for bitterness than more bitterness. There is no greater punishment for anger than more anger. So I said envy robs, envy grows inside of us, and then lastly, envy hides. You won't see it in yourself. We, we live in a capitalistic society. Now, I, I love America, don't get me wrong. But um, much of what we see in mass media is geared towards making us content with what we don't have, rather than appreciating what we do have. Envy has always been used to sell things in our country and others. And we are being programmed to be discontented with the blessings we've been given. So how do you escape? As I sort of um, turn the corner here. If you want to learn how to escape, you can't look at the life of Saul. Because he, he didn't fare very well in this story. You have to look at the life of Jonathan. The interesting thing, Saul and Jonathan have both seen God's anointing on David. Um, in, in many ways, Jonathan had uh, uh, more to lose than Saul did because Jonathan was going to be the king. He was already living a privileged life, but he was going to become king. And in verse 4, there's this, this little short package which is the key to everything I'm talking about today. Jonathan, it says, Jonathan gives David his royal robe, his armor, and his sword. Now, you have to understand the symbolism in this to appreciate it. The robe represents David's privilege, David's sort of um, authority, his status in life. The sword represents um, Jonathan's power. And Jonathan turns to David, and he takes off his robe and his armor, and he gives it to him. And he turns the sword and says, here, you command me. I will follow you. I will let you be king, David and I will serve you. So as, as I sort of tie all this up this morning, 
What do you think God might be saying to you? How will you uh, uh, conquer envy? You know, there comes a point in every one of our lives when we have to really and honestly and truly decide, what am I going to do with Jesus Christ? We have to decide who is going to be on the throne, Jesus or me. To be willing to accept Christ, we have to be willing to step down off of our thrones that we have built, our false thrones, our false ideas, our false sense of importance, and, sit in, and submit the, ourselves to the one that deserves the praise. You have to decide who's going to rule in your life. Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus Christ had the ultimate glory. You see, Jesus took his robe off and laid it down. He laid his sword down and he paid the ultimate price that you and I might have life and that we might have it abundantly more than we ever dreamed or imagined. Have you come to a place in your life, maybe this morning, where you're, re- you're willing to say, Jesus, you command me and I will serve you. To be perfectly honest, that's been a process for me. It took me a number of years to work through that. But I can tell you, um, with all sincerity, that is what is important. Because the essential things can't be seen with your eyes. <laughs>